Welcome to Mindset Lab. It's, it's hard to believe that we're already in episode five. We've talked about mindsets across all levels of competition, uh, both in and out of sport. And, uh, and empathy has kind of been the framework that we've worked with uh, throughout all five episodes. What better way to have uh, today's episode uh, kind of anchored with uh, Dr. Helen Reese, who is the Associate Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at uh, Harvard Medical School, also the Director of Empathy and Relational Science Program at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, and, and the Chief Scientist of uh, Empathy Training Program at Empathetics. Dr. Helen Reese, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you were uh, tuned into any of our episodes previously, of course, you would know our amazing co-host, Dr. Jennifer Fraser, whose experience in education and, and comparative literature has been focused on bullying and abuse in sport. Thank you so much again, Jen, for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm very honored to have some time with Dr. Helen Reese. I'm a great big fan of her work and the changes that she's making all across all sectors from medicine to education and politics even. I think I think an appropriate, oh, sorry, Dr. Helen Reese, if you had something I'm to say. I'm just going to add law enforcement. We're doing empathy training for police uh, forces in the United States, and we're really thrilled to be working with them. I think that's a that's a very very important area and very topical right now to what's what's happening in the world. Um, I, th I think kind of uh, an appropriate starting place, even to clarify the difference between empathy and sympathy, is I think sometimes people mix it up. Uh, Dr. Helen Reese, are you able to speak about kind of the difference between empathy and sympathy? It's quite a big difference. Um, sympathy is really, you know, the earliest term that recognized that people share feelings. Um, you know, so if you see somebody sad and upset, you tend to catch the feelings. So um, it came from that recognition that, that people share the same feelings. And it's a really old term. Um, it has kind of morphed to feeling bad for people or taking pity on them. And empathy is a newer term. It's only been around 100 years. And it was actually um, first brought into the lexicon. Um, by German estheticians who realized that we could feel our way into a work of art and have an emotion that was uh, conjured up by somebody that we'd never met. And it, so, and it got taken further to be an interpersonal ability to feel our way into the experience of others and to know from within. So empathy is feeling with people. It's a temporary sharing of what they're feeling. And it's also our ability to take other people's perspective. Um, it's a more sort of sophisticated brain activity than just feeling bad for others. Looking at your 2013 TED talk, you, you mentioned about um, I feel your pain and, and kind of that concept that it's, it's more than just a figure of speech. And uh, based on the brain scans that you showed in the TED talk, there was kind of a, a similar experience that women who with their partners were feeling a certain pain and, and then when told that their partners were also um, experiencing that same kind of shock that they were they had the exact same kind of brain, like neurological pathways firing of, of as if the pain was happening to them. When, when doing that kind of research and speaking to people who might not understand the concept of empathy, how do, how do you kind of explain that, that physical reaction? Yeah, well, you know, um, empathy is so important because it actually helps us know when other people need help. You know, so um, if you take the example of somebody getting their hand slammed in a car door in a parking lot, if we witness that, 
we, we actually flinch when we see that, even though nothing has touched us. And you might wonder, well, like, what's the use of that? Why are we feeling pain when it's happening to other people? And um, the explanation is that number one, it teaches us don't slam your own hand in a car door because it's gonna hurt. Um, but on a much more important level, it gets us to help. And why is that important? Well, if we only cared about ourselves, you know, everyone who was hurt, who needed other people would, you know, would perish. Um, there, so it's actually the glue of our society. And, you know, it actually keeps our communities together when you think about it. You can't live in isolation. Dr. Fraser, I'm seeing you nodding your head. Do you want to speak to that? <laughs> well, it's it's dovetails with the kind of work that I do. And I would love to hear you speak about, I, I've read in your book, The Empathy Effect, the discussions around and the research you've done around bias and how someone can be in an out group, despite our innate empathy and our, our brain being wired to care about other people for our own survival, as well as survival of the human race. And yet, what happens is some people do not extend that empathy to others due to bias. So it, especially with your work on law enforcement, if you could talk about that, I think it would be really helpful um, for our audience and everyone to understand. So one of the problems with um, in-group empathy is that, um, you know, empathy is traces way back to human survival when we mostly interacted with very small groups. And those groups were usually surrounded by geographic boundaries, such as mountains and oceans and rivers and things that were hard to navigate. So people tended to have concern for their, you know, their communities. And if, if outsiders came to, and usually, you know, because resources were scarce and there were really few tools or even any sort of transportation way back then, if, if, if new people showed up, they were often um, antagonists or invaders. You know, that worked way back when. Um, that judgment of like who's in and who's out is still pretty stuck in our brains. And we know that when people get to know one another, even though they may look different or, and they may have different accents, they may not even speak the same language, we can overcome these biases because we get to see our shared humanity. And that's what sort of really is lacking when we prejudge based on where people are from or what their skin color is or what their accents are, is that there's a risk of losing like we're all human we all you know need to cooperate especially as our world has gotten smaller and smaller but unfortunately these prejudgments this who's in who's out and who's going to steal my resources is so baked into the human psyche that that's why we have to teach empathy um, it's the natural born thing but it definitely needs um, nurturing, especially when we're talking about people unlike ourselves. If you want to do any training, you first have to understand people that you're working with. You don't come in and start to or how to think or what to believe um, or how to behave. You start by listening. And um, 
you know, especially with law enforcement, we are finding it's so important to hear the stories of what's happening out in the field because not all police officers are the same. And there's a huge spectrum of, you know, people who are really in this to help their communities and keep communities safe. And then people who are drawn to it because of the more, you know, maybe their military background. So, so to even group law, you know, police officers in the same quote tribe or same group is a big mistake. And, you know, empathy is mostly comprised of perspective taking, which means that we try to imagine what's happening in the minds of others and theory of mind, which is where we really try to understand people's motivations and their reasons for doing things. Um, and that's sort of the cognitive or the thinking part of empathy, like what's going on in their mind or like what's going on in that whole context? Why are they behaving that way? That's perspective taking. Um, and then there's this temporary, what's called affect sharing, which means shared emotion, where we temporarily, you know, have a little inkling of what another person's emotion is because it's hitting our perceptive abilities and our brain networks. And so we try to activate, you know, uh, where people are coming from in the first place. Are they open to trying to understand what's happening with with other people or are they so injured and upset about what's happening to them that they first have to be understood? And I think that's kind of, uh, unfortunately, a shortcut that a lot of training programs take. They just get in there and try to change people before they understand their perspective. Um, and then it's really about um, enhancing our native born perceptive abilities of what, you know, what the emotional experiences of another person through these different perspective taking and um, understanding emotions and, and emotion recognition. So, I mean, it's, it's a big training program. I can't kind of, uh, you know, describe everything we do, but those are sort of the main, um, you know, categories that we're working with. And then once we get people to understand maybe their empathy challenges, we have techniques and practices to help them overcome those. It's seeming like that that kind of individual approach to to training programs and and kind of even introducing the idea of empathy to to individuals. Um, it's reminding me of what you said in in your in your TED talk as well. Is it's it's much easier to inflict harm on people whose pain you never see, and especially with with in a social media generation right now, what we're seeing within sport and I would say the kind of greater society, both in in, in the U.S. and Canada, is there's a lot more kind of spreading of of um, short sentences without actually being able to take time to understand someone else's experience beyond just, like you said, the 140 character limit on, on Twitter, when kind of coming up against something like that, where there is a lot of, of short kind of, not a whole lot of, of, of attention given to individuals um, in sports specifically, and, and kind of in the greater greater society. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on when talking to someone who doesn't understand empathy. And and um, I'm, I'm not sure if Jen, if you have another question to build off what I'm saying, but I'm just kind of sharing my thoughts about that. Um, I just think that what's really interesting is this idea of time and how empathy is connected to time, because 
and I know it's something you work on with physicians and, and with nurses who are under so much pressure and they feel like they don't have time for empathy. And so I think that's what you're getting at, Jameson, is this idea that we live in a society that's so sped up that we think that empathy is going to slow us down. And certainly this is an issue in sport. So you know, we will teach children how to kick a soccer ball over and over and over again as if it's a vital skill, but we won't take five to 10 minutes to do any kind of empathy work with them at the beginning of a practice. So, you know, I, what I love in your, in your TED talk, um, Dr. Reese, is you call it the power of empathy. And sports is all about wanting to harness power. So could you tell us a bit about why is empathy so powerful? There's any example of trying to achieve a common goal, um, you know, with a group of people, sports is a great one. Um, and so I, I think your point about teaching physical skills, like how to kick the ball, um, without any lessons in sportsmanship, or in team mutual respect, or, you know, how people are going to get through a bad day, or how they're going to support one another if somebody, you know, misses the what would have been the winning goal and then the team loses the tournament, you know. So these are all um, sort of psychological scaffolding that really expert and successful teams need to build in, you know, hopefully from the time kids are playing sports in grade school. Because um, it's very hard to instill these values you know, 15, 18, 20 years later. Yeah, so Jameson, to your point, it seems to me that it, we have to start early um, with this kind of approach and this tapping into empathy because down the road when we're in social media and we don't have as much time perhaps, we don't make the mistakes of just tipping off our bias, for example, or discounting someone because we're not really listening to them. Um, I, I really like in your work, um, Dr. Reese, how you give just even very practical lessons for say an educator, where you say you make the effort to consciously notice the eye color of your students because it makes you slow down and it makes you really look into their eyes and, and see them for who they are. You know, we all have a tendency to get caught up in our own own story and say we forget our person that's our listener so love that as, as one of the many techniques that you teach in terms of how to slow down so you know it's interesting that you bring up eye gaze I mean it's you know one of the it's the top key to empathy and thank goodness even with the pandemic we're not covering up our eyes yet yeah. <laughs> not yet <laughs> our smiles and our half of our faces but um, so I know I had two uh, college um, athletes, my children, a son and a daughter, and I know that um, the power of eye gaze from a coach is incredible. And when, it's sort of like the parental gleam in a child's eye. You know, when, when the parent has the gleam in their eye, the child knows that they're safe, that they're valued, and that they're appreciated for who they are. Um, some coaches misuse this to be a form of punishment. They will avert their gaze. They will not look at a player who just made a mistake. Um, and they use it as a form of, um, of, you know, showing their dissatisfaction or their displeasure. When actually what a player who just made the mistake needs is like, 
I'm still with you. We're still okay. You're, you're a human being. I know you didn't mean to do that. And so one of the most profound mistakes that I see in coaching athletes is the use of kind of withholding approval. You might even say withholding love if kids make a mistake. And all that does is make them way more anxious about the disconnection and being sort of out of the out of the tribe, out of the group. And what does that do to their performance? It makes it worse. And so um, I think coaches have a, um, a, it's a difficult job because they have to walk that fine line between holding standards, you know, really, uh, you know, reinforcing the importance of discipline and practice and showing up and being on time and all of these things that are really, you know, character strengths. But when they start punishing kids through withdrawal um, and um, isolation um, and, you know, and worse, there's also much worse than, than that. Um, uh, what they do is they harm, they harm these players and, um, it's, it's the worst way to try to achieve, you know, national or even state or municipal recognition as a, as a team, because you're, you're creating tremendous anxiety and fear. So I think empathy, you know, people think, oh, you're just being soft on everybody and it, you're just trying to be nice. And they disqualify it as if it's, you know, kind of like no holds barred, you can do whatever you want and you're still great on the team. It, that, it doesn't mean that at all. There's an entrenched way of thinking out there that's remarkably difficult to overturn, which is exactly as you described, that somehow um, ignoring a child, refusing feedback, not even looking at them as if they don't exist, is somehow acceptable behavior and it's going to achieve results. There, I can't tell you how much that's believed in the sport world. And so you describing exactly how harmful it is and how it doesn't get results, and there's no research that backs up that it does, is very powerful. I'm curious if you could share whether or not it's a big question of mine, because unlike most people, I really believe in rehabilitation. So I believe that a coach, I'm hoping anyways, that a coach who has been trained in this very destructive system and doesn't know actually that it causes a lot of harm. Could, could you take someone like that in your empathetics and um, training program, could you change that pretty entrenched brain because they were raised that way, trained that way, they believe in it. Is, is that possible? Can we rehabilitate people that use these types of punishing behaviors? I, I have definitely met coaches who have seen the light um, and who realize that they are not going to use those techniques. Um, I wish I could say that was true of most coaches that I've met. Um, but the coaches that I have met who see their, their players as real people, who, for example, in college will say, if you have a big exam and you have to miss the practice today, do your academics and what he gets is like much greater allegiance like the kids feel so grateful and they want to put out for him instead of like show up and you know you better keep your grades up whether you you know so threats are so ineffective 
And unfortunately, many of the coaches who use these techniques were raised on them. That's the model they grew up with. It's all they know. And, you know, I've had some um, athletic directors at um, colleges start using my book. And they, one athletic director at Middlebury got a copy for every one of his coaches because he really understands how destructive it is to bench a baseball player when he strikes out and don't let him, you know, you don't let him up at bat for, an, for a week. Like, what is that going to do? Is that going to improve that baseball player's, uh, you know, batting average? No, it's going to, first of all, not give him any practice. And second of all, just have him sit there and feel like he's terrible. So um, these, uh, I want to say that many of these uh, techniques and tactics are old, old school, but they're still very prevalent. You know, one thing we haven't talked about is self-empathy. Most people think of empathy as something you give out, but it's clearer than ever, you know, even with physicians and nurses, if they don't practice some self-empathy, the well runs dry very quickly. And it's the same thing with, with coaches. If they don't understand their, the, you know, the harm or the, you know, the ways in which these kinds of uh, tactics affected them, they're not going to be able to understand why they're no good. And sometimes it takes a while to sort of peel back, you know, and get back to that personal story. What, what kind of what, what I'm hearing you describe is, is, the like the this kind of harsh coaching techniques and and one of the things that we talked about with with Jen say and, and we're going to be talking about is is kind of how a lot of coaching techniques have been shaped during times of wars and that's literally the standard of of coaching is that it's kind of like this bullying abuse thing that's going on between coaches and athletes and in other areas of society as well and uh, it's kind of reminding me of of what you you mentioned in your TED talk as well about kind of this confident appearing patient that you had that the scan was going up and down with her anxiety, but she seemed to be sitting there quite normally. Would you say self-empathy is kind of a concept that you would introduce to her, for example, or, or athletes that are kind of struggling with anxiety, for example? Definitely. And uh, Jameson, you raise a, an excellent point. So some athletes, they learn to get that, you know, calm demeanor, they just nod their head while the coach is yelling at them or putting them down. And it looks like nothing's getting to them. And um, but when we talk about empathy, you know, one of the most important studies uh, that I participated in was realizing that when a person feels understood, your physiology lines up like you both feel good, you're both quote in sync and we have tracings that show what that looks like. But if you're being yelled at and you can still look calm, but inside your physiology is completely ramped up. You know, it's almost like you've just, you know, done 50 push-ups. your heart rate is going, you're probably sweating a little bit. You're... And when people are in that physiologically activated state, they don't perform well. There's way too much um, adrenaline and cortisol coursing through their veins. And that's why yelling at, at athletes is just setting them up to have a really poor performance. And 
that effect doesn't go away the moment the conversation's over. It lingers. So you can have this huge arc of anxiety and then maybe it wanes a little bit, but the next time you see the coach, it's going to go right up because it's kind of, a, it's called aversive conditioning. You, you learn that when you see this person, you're going to, you're going to feel afraid. So, um, you know, learning how to calm the coaches down would really help with learning how to calm the players down. Could you talk a little bit about what happens when cortisol remains in the brain? What does it actually do to brain architecture? Because most people don't understand. And if you try and raise these issues with uh, athletic directors or coaches or in high schools, for example, with say a principal and you say, oh, you know, the coach is yelling and the coach is humiliating. And they say, oh, it's just old school coaching. They're just toughening them up for a tough world. They have no concept and they don't refer to the fact that cortisol, as you just signaled, is getting shot up into the brain and it's staying there in many children who are suffering from really heavy duty anxiety. So could you speak about what happens in the brain with cortisol? Well, it's actually, um, the brain is reacting in a fight or flight um, uh, response. And the brain is sending signals to our endocrine system to release adrenaline and cortisol. So it's really the, the effect of these, these uh, hormones on our end organs. They make our hearts beat really fast. They send blood to the, like, to the large muscles. They make our respiration uh, rate much quicker. And, you know, our bodies are designed to have these fight and flight reactions only if like we're being attacked. You know, like if a wild dog in your neighborhood comes at you, that's why we are, you know, our bodies are built for these fight or flight reactions. And they're useful if you're trying to get away from a, you know, an, an angry, violent dog. But our, our, our internal organs are not meant to be like bombarded with these chemicals so that we're in a constant state of fight or flight. And um, you can't learn well, you can't perform well, you can run fast um, if you're scared, but, you're, it, but it's not going to make you very precise because you know when you're running away from a wild dog, it doesn't really matter you know, that you can kick a ball too. All you need to do is run. Um, so these, um, these fear states that the poor athletes get into are incredibly destructive. Um, sometimes people, it'll sharpen their focus because they, they need to, to do something precise. And if, if, if you're a person who can get a sharper focus, your coach is gonna think, oh yeah, well, she did really well because I screamed at her, you know? but most people don't do as well in fight or flight. Um, so long-term, um, there is genetic uh, research that shows that the, the ends of our chromosomes, which are called telomeres, they actually shorten when people are in fight, and fight or flight for extended periods of time, and it actually shortens your life. Like these, these things have actual results on longevity. So th th these are not, you know, innocuous, unharmful states that people are be being put in. And also the psychological 
damage of feeling that someone you look up to and someone who's in an authority position is actually showing displeasure or yelling or punishing you somehow, it, you know, it, it reduces people to feeling like, like naughty children. And, and these things are happening to grown adults, but in, psychologically, it puts you back into I'm being yelled at, so I must be bad. And um, it attacks their self-esteem, their, their self-composure, and, and their self-love. And it's really so destructive. I'm, I'm hearing every, everything that you're saying right now. And I'm, I'm almost like, like frustrated that this isn't something that is taught to athletes earlier on in their careers. And, and even just as you mentioned before, human beings, like I'm, I'm, with every word you're saying, I'm learning about it. And it's, it's kind of making me think of your, the, way, the quote that you used from, from Jonathan Saffron Foyer about when we accept diminished substitutes, we become diminished substitutes. And it's kind of this, this like settling for what's currently happening to get out of that and, and, and really learn from and like listen to the individual. What, what are some strategies that you found with patients or in research or that you, you, even just your thoughts about people actually using listening as a skill? You know, listening is one of the most expensive gifts you can give someone. I mean, everybody wants to be listened to. And most people want to be listened to way more than they want to listen. Um, and there's a quote that says, if only people had the same passion about listening as they felt about being listened to, the world would be a better place. Um, but most, just as you mentioned earlier, uh, Jameson, you know, we're communicating mostly through sound bites, you know, like five words. Oh, you know, thinking of you, yeah, high five, do well. Like everything is just a quick, you know, sort of little blast of information. And we're getting worse at listening. You know, a really skilled coach will spend time to get to know their players. You know, why do you want to play this sport? Who are you playing for? You know, is it what you love? Um, you know, what do you want to do with this? You know, some people will just say, I just love the game. And it's so sad if everything becomes about winning, you know, there are athletes now who never want to play the game they played in college or high school because it became such a sort of cutthroat, unpleasant experience. And that's the last thing you want to do. I was just going to say seven out of 10 children quit sports at 13. So at 13, when they develop you know, the adolescent brain, it's so powerful, but so vulnerable and so open to social, all the things that you've described that really hurt the social brain. And our kids are so vulnerable starting at 13, all the way up to 24, 25 with brain development. And yet, going back to what Jameson was saying, this is not being taught. Teachers aren't taught this. Coaches aren't taught this. It's as though we expect them to somehow know this important scientific information and this sort of breakthrough work that someone like yourself is doing, but they really don't. So there is a widespread need for this to be in classrooms and in parenting courses and in coaching courses, because we're just really, we're, we're, it's a bankrupt system at present and it's widespread. So I was really interested speaking about listening and stories. I'd love to know what drew you to the neuroscience of emotion. You know, you could have put your research into anything. What drew you to empathy, Dr. Reese? 
Well, I'm going to answer that in, in just a moment. But what, what you just said was so important, which is that the coaches and teachers don't don't, you know, use the science. And the science is quite new. Like this, the, the you know, this empathy research has been around for 15 to 20 years at most. So many of them who are teaching were never exposed that empathy and uh, compassion and kindness have a scientific basis. So they think that these are things kids are learning at home. And I think we're in this sort of really funny gap right now where older educators might think like, what, me? Now I have to teach empathy too, you know, that they should be learning that at home or at church or in the synagogue, you know? Um, so the fact that brain science has accelerated with understanding, you know, what human, you know, kindness and empathy looks like um, there, there is this gap in education with, with I think, older educators um, who, who will say, what, the science of empathy? What are you talking about? Um, but people like yourselves who are so passionate, I can see it and sense it about getting this education into, you know, starting with elementary school, um, are realizing that kids are not learning um, sportsmanship, empathy, um, putting the other person first, showing care and concern necessarily. They're not learning it at home necessarily. You know, there might be more of like, get your homework done, practice your instrument, practice, you know, your sports, and then the kid is exhausted and goes to bed. Um, many kids don't even have free playtime anymore. So our society has definitely sped up. And then just to get back to why of all the things in psychiatry, I chose this. Um, well, I've always been interested in um, helping people's psychological states. Um, you know, it, it's a lot of my family heritage, having a very, very difficult, awful time during World War II in Europe and coming to the United States. So I, you know, I understood the language of um, hardship and suffering. Um, but when my own patients in my practice were coming in and saying that they felt that their doctors didn't care about them, that they were being run through like a mill and that no one was remembering their story. And like the woman in my TED talk who had finally lost 15 pounds and then was told, said to the doctor said, so when are you gonna do something about your weight as, as if nothing happened? And we'd worked for like two years to help her get motivated to, you know, try to do something to improve her health. Um, I just realized that we were harming people. I mean, that you, you, you cannot just prescribe pills and tell people to do things without the care and compassion because otherwise we're, we're just talking to ourselves and when I, when it coincided with um, all of this new brain research on um, how do we measure empathy and how do we, you know my big my big research question was if it's getting beaten out of people can you also bring it back? Can you enhance it? And that was a burning question to me because I knew that some of these doctors who were saying these things were not bad people. 
they were extremely rushed. You know, the hospitals were putting a lot of, um, you know, productivity requirements, the electronic health record came in. So there were a lot of challenges to empathy. So I'd like to think that most people want to be more empathetic, um, but they are facing challenges. And um, so, Jen, you brought up something early that I want to address, which is many people think they don't have time for empathy. Like, oh, that's just going to add another, you know, 10 or 20 minutes to what I'm trying to do here. And our training was really trying to show how, you know, if you look someone in the eye, if you sit down with them when you're talking, these things take like, what, a millisecond, you know? So, and they have such a powerful impact, but you have to be mindful and present. You have to be mindful, like I'm in front of a person here. They might be remembering everything I say to them. I'm their coach. And so it's like remembering who you are in that person's world and how much of an impact you make and how very small changes in your behavior and just showing some curiosity about them as people can go such a long way. Dr. Reese, I just, I'm sure Jameson has something more to say. I want to thank you so much your scientific knowledge and just how articulate and um, just vital you are as a person. It really has been a privilege to talk to you today. Thank you so much. It's been a privilege for me too. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm totally on the same page. I'm, I'm very grateful because I'm noticing my experiences in sport and the more I talk to people that are my age, the understanding of who you are as a person is so disconnected from the reality of experiences in sport. And that's kind of the purpose of this podcast is just to kind of bridge the actual current information that pe people such as yourself are doing on the brain and, and the reality of the science of empathy. And it's so disconnected from what's actually happening. So I'm even just listening to you today, I'm already like feeling my, like, I don't even know what the correct words are, but my brain's going all over the place right now. So I thank you. You're welcome. That's the power of empathy. And if we want to end on one message, you will get so much more from your players if you treat them with respect, if you show that you ha they haven't lost your love or your care because they make mistakes, but you're behind them as people. Like that is a superpower. And, and I wish more coaches would tap into it. And if, and if you're a listener right now looking to learn more information, you can go and check out Dr. Reese's TED Talk, The Power of Empathy, and as well as her book, The Empathy Effect. So if you'd like to learn more information, then that is all online. Um, and thank you for joining us on today's episode of Mindset. We'll see you next week.